0: Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garton. This morning we want to talk about the ERA, the second Parashah, the second weekly reading in the book of Exodus. It begins in Exodus 6 and ends towards the conclusion of chapter 9. This uh, parasha is noted for the continuing study and uh, exploration of the Moses epic in the Torah, which will eventually lead to the exodus of the Hebrews from Egypt. The parasha begins in the following way. God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God, but I did not make myself known to them by my other name, which is neither pronounced nor translated according to Jewish tradition. I established my breach, my covenant with them, and the land of Canaan. I have heard the moaning of the Israelite slave. I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will redeem you with an outdressed arm and through miracles. I will take you to be my people and I will be God. You shall know that I am God who freed you from your labors in Egypt and gave you the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A powerful beginning to the parashah. God then tells Moses to go tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. But Moses, being unsure of himself, says, The Israelites would not listen to me. How then should Pharaoh heed me? I am a man of impeded speech. God responds to this self-effacing comment by saying, I place you in the role of God to Pharaoh with your brother Aaron as your prophet. I shall repeat all, you shall repeat all that I command you, and Aaron shall speak to the Pharaoh. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that I may multiply my signs and marvels in the land of Egypt. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I deliver the Israelites from their midst. Torah tells us that Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 when they returned to make their demands on Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron did as God commanded, cast down their rod and it shall turn into a serpent. Pharaoh, in response to all of this, summons their magicians and they turn their rods into serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed their rods. God then commanded Moses, go to Pharaoh in the morning when he is coming out of the Nile River Tell him to let the Israelites go so that they may worship me in the mid-milderness. Tell them that I will show I am God by striking the river with a rod, turning it into blood and killing all the fish. All the waters in Egypt, even in the vessel, shall turn to blood. And here we begin to read of the plagues, the ten plagues that will culminate on the eve when the Jewish people leave Egypt. Moses and Aaron do as the Lord commanded, and the waters turn to blood, and the fish die. But when Pharaoh's magicians do the same with their spells, Pharaoh's heart is, as the Torah tells us, once again hardened and stiffened, and he refuses to let the Israelites go. Seven days later, God and Moses told Moses to say to Pharaoh that if he refuses to let the people go, I will plague the country and his palace, and the people's homes with frogs and subsequently frogs appeared everywhere but the magicians also brought frogs upon the land then pharaoh summoned moses and aaron saying plea with the lord to remove the frogs and i will let the people go to sacrifice to the lord pharaoh says i will do it so that you can learn there is none like god Moses pleaded to God, and God killed the frogs. The people piled the dead frogs uh, in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief for the people of Egypt, he became stubborn and would not let people go, just as God had predicted. We then begin a series of plagues that many of you as listeners know. We turn to the plague of lice, and this too, um, the Pharaoh is unable to respond to. Then Lord said to Moses, go again to Pharaoh. Tell him that if he does not let the people go, I will loose a swarm of insects, usually known as locusts. The insects shall swarm all over Egypt and the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel dwell, there shall be none. The Pharaoh does not let the people go, and the plague of locusts swarms throughout the land. Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron, saying, go and sacrifice to God within the land, But Moses says it would be not right for us to do this because God commands us to sacrifice um, and that is different. If we do so before your eyes, your people will stone us so we must go a distance of three days into the wilderness and do these sacrifices. Pharaoh says, if you remove these insects, I will let you do your sacrifices in the wilderness, but do not go very far. What do you guess happens again? Moses asked the Lord to remove the swarms of insects from the land, and God did so. But the Pharaoh became stubborn and would not let the people go. God now says to Moses, I will bring a plague and strike down the livestock with severe pestilence, but the livestock of the Israelites shall not be struck down. But still, Pharaoh did not let the people go. God says to Moses and Aaron, each of you shall take a handful of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw it towards the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become a fine dust over all the land and cause boils. And this was done just like that. And the magicians were unable to confront Moses because of their own boils. But but Pharaoh would not let the Israelites go. The plagues are upon the Egyptians. God reminds Moses to tell Pharaoh that God could have killed Pharaoh, but he chose not to do this, that he's offered him numerous opportunities to let the people of Israel go. Now God brings another plague. Hail. Hail that they have never seen before, and to bring the livestock into the shelter. The thunder and hail and fire streamed down on the ground of Egypt, and anything in the open was struck down as well as the grasses and trees. And again the Torah tells us only in the land of Goshen where the Israelites stayed there was no hail. The Parasha ends with Pharaoh agreeing to let the people go in return for a cessation of the hail and thunder. But soon as that happened, Pharaoh's heart stiffened, hardened, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as God had foretold through Moses. Some of you may be familiar with the story of the plagues, some of you may in fact know the biblical epic, but many of you may be surprised by the amount of description that the Torah offers us about the plagues and the interaction between Moses, Pharaoh, and God. With me this morning to discuss this week's Parasha Parashava Era is Rabbi Adan share of Congregation Mark Ziki Chadas in Ottawa, Canada. Rabbi Cher, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you here. Now, the listeners have heard an introduction to this week's fascinating parasha. And of course, the highlight or the lowlight of this week's parasha are the introduction of the plagues. That would uh, be the response of God and Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh's intransigence. A lot has been written and said about the plagues and about the variety of plagues and um, and what impact it might have had on the whole narrative. So I'm wondering if we could begin by you sharing with our listeners how you understand the use of these plagues in the narrative. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, so uh, just uh, just uh, one just interesting um, word to share um, to begin with. You uh, said the highlight and then the low light. I think that that idea actually exists in our text. Um, at the Seder every year, so on Passover, we um, Jews in the uh, outside of, you know, we, we get to, outside of Israel, we get together and we have two seders, two of these uh, special Passover meals where we tell the story of the Exodus, and we have um, all of these wonderful rituals and traditions. And one of the rituals that we have during the seder is we actually mention each one of the ten plagues by name. And as we do so, we take our finger and we uh, dip our finger into our cup of wine. There's a lot of wine at the seder. We uh, dip it into the cup of wine, and then we pour a little bit of the Um, of the wine out every time we mention one of the plagues. And uh, it's interesting, like, why are we doing this? Why are we uh, spilling a little bit of wine every time we mention one of the plagues? So there's a very interesting um, passage in the Talmud that tells us about the episode of the Israelites coming through the Sea of Reeds as their exodus begins, and then, of course, the Egyptians following and drowning in the sea. And we hear about the song of the Israelites. We actually say it every day in our prayers, a song of gratitude to God for the Exodus, for, for, the, um, for the great miracle that happened to them.
0: And for the and- listeners who may uh, want to identify that passage, that's Exodus 15, known as the Song of Miriam or Tayam, the song of the sea that Rabbi Sher is referring to right now. Um, and he's using that um, and the story that follows as a um, explanatory note of why we take a drop of wine out of the Seder wine glass. Sorry, I wanted to just make sure our listeners were following you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for, uh, for all that clarification. So, um, So what the Talmud adds is as follows, that the angels, they begin to sing a song of praise and jubilation to God as the Israelites make it onto dry land and the Egyptians drown at sea, and God immediately stops them. And God says, um, that I'll say it in the Hebrew, which means that, my creatures, my, 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 my creations, here they are drowning at sea, and you think it's appropriate to be singing a song right now, to be singing a song of praise right now. That's absolutely not appropriate. So the idea being that although the Egyptians um, perhaps, you know, certainly deserve this type of punishment, they, 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 had, um, they had done horrific things to the Israelites, still, when it comes down to it, God's creations were drowning at sea— this is not a time to rejoice for anybody about anything. And now going back to the ten plagues, um, we see a similar concept. The reason that we take a little bit of wine out every single time we say one of the plagues is because during these plagues, the Egyptians were devastated. Terrible things happened to them. And again, it may have been the right thing. It may have been the the appropriate thing that needed to come to the Egyptians, but Still, human creation, God's creations were suffering at those moments during those plagues, so it would be inappropriate for us to have complete celebration, to have that complete joy. The the full glass of wine is very much symbolic of a complete joy, right, that that, that full glass of wine. So every time we say one of the plagues, we empty a little bit of that wine onto our plate to show and to reflect how our joy has to be missing a little bit, because as we were experiencing this as a miracle as the steps towards our exodus are, even though they may have been our enemies, ultimately human creation was suffering. So that would be a... So just to speak to your low Good. light, highlight idea. No, no, no,
0: thank you for That's that. Um, it's certainly part of the Seder and Jewish tradition that we take no joy in um, the destruction of human life. And even if the actions of Pharaoh brought a response uh, which was uh, experienced by the majority of Egyptians. In some sense, they are the innocent bystanders um, responding to Pharaoh's decisions. And we, as Israelites, need to uh, modify our own uh, joy in recognition of the suffering that the people of Egypt experienced. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, terrific. Absolutely. That's a great introduction into the plagues because it puts them in a value context. Thank you.
1: hmm A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So, um, what, I, what I think an important and interesting conversation to have about the plagues is what exactly was the point of them? What was the goal? What was the motive uh, behind these ten plagues? Right? You think about what the Egypt must have looked like by the end right? So you, had, uh, you had an entire water supply turning to blood. You had this swarming life, painful boils breaking out across people's body, entire bodies, total blackout and darkness. Um, it was, you just imagine after seeing some of these movies that you imagine this completely devastated war zone. And the question is why? Why was this important? And it's not surprising, therefore, that we find that the Pharaoh's aid, that his ministers even said to them, how, how, said to him, how long will this be a trap for us? Let them go to worship their God. Are you not aware that Egypt is lost? Right? So we, we definitely, we, we can feel, we can read that visceral devastation that was going on. And what was the point of that? And oftentimes I think the first thought that comes to people's mind is the plagues were there in order to ensure the freedom of the Israelites. But I think the question we have to ask, and we can ask it in several different ways, um, is was this really necessary to achieve that goal? If God is performing miracles, then why not just put, for instance, why not just put the Egyptians to sleep for a week and let the Jews walk out unnoticed, right? If that's the ultimate goal. Or if... um, Right. Or maybe do one big plague, get it in one fell swoop, and that will cause the Israelites to be let free. But I think what even makes this question stronger is a, is a, a big philosophical dilemma that we have based on, um, based on the Torah portion of this week, um, because we're told that after many of the plague, um especially after the sixth plague and on, we are told about God hardening the heart of Pharaoh, right? It seems almost as if Pharaoh's ready to let the Israelites go, and then we're told, but God hardens the heart of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh... Goes back on his word and says, "No, we're not going to let the Israelites go." And that happens over and over again after so many of the plagues. And if really the entire motive here was to ensure the freedom of the Israelites, then why would God have hardened the Pharaoh's heart the moment he says yes? That should have been it. What exactly was going on there? Must be a, there must have been a further goal, a deeper uh, something deeper that uh, that um, that was trying to be reached here um, beyond just ensuring the freedom of the Israelites.
0: So um, just to remind our listeners that three times um, Pharaoh made his heart heavy uh, appears in the book of Exodus as if uh, Pharaoh made his own heart heavy in Exodus 8, and Exodus 15, and Exodus 28. The text tells us that um, Pharaoh made his heart heavy, but five times... The text tells us that um, this is the result of God making his heart heavy. And so Rabbi Sher wants to kind of ask us to consider, um, given that God has the power to bring plagues, why was it necessary to do 10 plagues? And why was it apparently necessary for Pharaoh to be inhibited? after uh, a number of plagues from just letting the Israelites go. It's a very deep question about the very basis of this story and the power of God and how we understand um, from the literal meaning of this story, God's intervention. Um, And your answer to this is? So
1: I definitely think, and you know, I, um, I think that just some of the, some of the reading of the verses um, throughout these passages um, kind of points us to the answer, right? Um, early on we have, um, so this is Exodus 10, verses 1 and 2, we have the first idea that seems pretty clear. The Lord says to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his aides, in order that I may display my signs amongst them. And here we go. And that you may recount and tell your children and your children's children how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I displayed my signs amongst them in order that you may know that I am the Lord. Uh So what would seem pretty clear from there is that we have this idea, um, this educational process for the Israelites. The Israelites have been slaves for, what, 210 years perhaps? Um, for a long, long time. That's right. I mean,
0: the text tells us that this new pharaoh arose who knew nothing about the generations before him and not only Mm -hmm. says he didn't know Joseph and Joseph's brothers, but didn't know the generations that preceded him. Exactly. Um, Exactly. And is simply the inheritor of a large group of um, non-Egyptians living in Goshen. Yeah, good. Exactly, exactly. And
1: what we are told in the, in the Torah is that this was a group of people that, a couple hundred years earlier, they came down to Egypt as a family. There were 70 people that came down as a family, right? There, there are plenty of people that have 70 people families, you know, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. And that's what they came down as. And now here they are in Egypt, they have become slaves, all they know is slavery, it's been generations since they weren't slaves, all they know is slavery, and yet, in just a very small amount of time, they're supposed to transform into a full-fledged nation upon the Exodus. And when all they have known is slavery, there needs to be some sort of educational process as to what it is that this nation is going to stand for, what is this nation going to be all about? So um, you see it in the verses, and then definitely the great Jewish philosophers, such as Nachmanides, he continues on. He furthers the idea that as they are about to become a nation, um, you have to think of the historical context. God wanted to make sure that um, that whatever philosophical truths um, they were supposed to they were supposed to internalize that those became concrete beliefs and a miracle. The hand of God, very clearly manifested in this world, is able to transform those philosophical truths into concrete beliefs, which was especially important at this moment in time when a bunch, when this group of ragtag slaves were supposed to become a full-fledged nation. And in fact, that's what Nachmanides says: that there was a an educational process that um, that the plagues presented. Um, for the Israelites to transform into a nation with a very clear philosophy, a very clear set of beliefs, and a very clear mission um, when it came to to, to the world uh, around them.
0: And do you you think the intent also is to remind the Israelites who've suffered under the yoke of slavery for hundreds of years of their covenantal relationship with God— it Absolutely. might have been easy for them to, um, given that they were living in uh, one particular area, to have felt some familial connection, some tribal connection. But it appears that the story wants to go beyond the tribal and say that what also connects you is this um, notion of covenantal relationship with Adonai. Yeah,
1: I think that's exactly it, right? And that's, those are what, that's what happens at the beginning of, you know, at the beginning of this episode, God appears to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses doesn't want to go and free the people. He doesn't think he's the right person for the job. And one of the questions he, he asks is, what should I tell the Israelites, right? How are they going to trust me? What, like, what, what in the world should I say to them um, that would get them to believe me that I'm a messenger of God? And we even find that at the very beginning, as... Um, as he goes to the pharaoh and says, "Let my people go," and Pharaoh says, "There's no way that's happening. In fact, I'm mean, going to even make their work, their labor, even more difficult." We find that the Israelites don't seem to to recognize God. Right? That that that, that isn't part of their. That's not part of their of their belief system at that time, um, and they even complain to Moses and they say, "What are you talking about? You told us you were coming on behalf of this God." Well, it seems like, uh, like you're, you know, that, there's, uh, that this is not very legitimate. So it would almost seem as if the plagues were the answer to the Israelites that, no, this is, this is the hand of God, and this is who it is that is, uh, you know, and you have this historic um, relationship, covenantal relationship with this God. And um, and now it's time to, to really recognize that.
0: So what you're suggesting is twofold, that our listen, listeners should put the plagues not in the context simply of punishment of the Egyptian people, but that the plagues serve as a means for the slaves of Egypt, the Israelite people who have had no clear-cut relationship to God to relearn who the God of Israel is and at the same time prepare them for the journey in which they will be led both by Moses and Aaron but certainly by God, a cloud um, at the day and a flame of fire at night Um, associated with their God. Uh, It's a nice way to um, reformulate the plagues instead of simply as punishment, as a means of educating the Israelites and preparing them for what the end part of the story will be. and you began this morning by reminding um, all of our listeners of that wonderful Talmudic story and that God tells the angels that now is not the time to uh, celebrate when um, the Egyptians are drowning. And I suppose one could extrapolate that. It's not the time to uh, celebrate when the Egyptians are suffering through the plagues. Exactly. 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 Wow, that's been wonderful. I want to thank you, Rabbi Cher, for helping us uh, have new insights into the plagues um, and from transforming and for transforming the plagues into something very thoughtful, not a simply capricious uh, revenge. Um, Rabbi Adan Sher of Congregation Moxiki Chadas of Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, has been my guest this morning, um, and I want to thank him. Um, you can listen to a rebroadcast of our show as a podcast on iTunes or on the chri.ca website. Um, should you wish to write a letter to help you better understand um, our guests' thoughts, you can write a letter to, on email, jff at chri.ca. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Steven Garten, wishing you good morning and a good day. Shalom. <laughs>